I've heard Pastor Bob say on several occasions, and even at times from the pulpit, that the world is not natural. The world is supernatural. You guys ever hear him say that? I believe that he's right. You and I live and breathe and work within the bounds of a miracle. No matter uh, where on earth humanity exists and no matter what culture they have created for themselves or what religious belief system they adhere to, people everywhere have a reverence for existence. Intuitively, humans recognize that merely existing is a miracle in and of itself. Why there is something instead of nothing is a question that pulls from deep within us an absolute profound sense of awe. Whether a person is from China, India, Russia, Iceland, Canada, the United States, or anywhere else, and whether that person is male or female or black or white, Christian, Catholic, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, or any of the other religious beliefs, or whether that person is even up to and including an atheist, all people everywhere revere the sanctity of existence. It's supernatural. It is a miracle. But admittedly, it is a familiar miracle. It's a miracle that we've all just gotten used to. We go about our lives and we almost always just take for granted that we exist and that the universe exists. Every now and then while I'm out with my family, I'll look up at the moon and I'll say, I don't want to alarm anyone, but there is a giant rock floating in the sky. Now, of course, we named it the moon, and it's been there as long as anyone can remember, but come on. It is a giant rock floating in the sky. Is that not impressing anyone? Truth is that none of it really is impressing anyone most of the time. But every now and then, something directs our attention to these very commonplace miracles, and we find that we are actually amazed, at least for a moment, and then we go back to eating our Doritos. But the point that I'm trying to make is that everyone recognizes the fundamental fact that we are here and that it is amazing that we are. And yet at the same time, as amazing as it is, we just get used to it. We tend to forget that we are all miracles, walking around with other miracles inside one giant miracle. It's all supernatural. PB's right. The world isn't natural. It's supernatural. And yet within the supernatural existence in which we all reside, there are admittedly rules that everything seems to follow. They're just commonplace to us at this point. You know, gravity works all the time. Hot things are hot. Cold things are cold. You can't breathe water. And McDonald's french fries are incredible. <laughs> and if you don't agree with that, you're either insane or you're lying. <laughs> it isn't that those things in and of themselves aren't miraculous, but they are simply the kind of miraculous that we've all gotten used to. There is a giant rock floating in the sky, but it's been there a long time, and so... Nobody really cares anymore, but I guarantee you if we woke up tomorrow and there was a second giant rock floating in the sky, we would all be very impressed. A new kind of miracle 
is sometimes needed to get our attention. God has been in the business of producing new kinds of miracles within this box of his big miracle at points along the way in human history just to grab our attention long enough to get us to listen to him for a moment. A great example is when he first spoke to Moses. He set a bush on fire. And yes, the fact that there's a bush that exists that can be set on fire is a miracle. But it's a commonplace of miracle, and that really didn't get Moses' attention. What got his attention was that the bush didn't burn. It was on fire, and it didn't burn. Now that, that was a little bit unordinary. That's what it says. It says, there was an angel of the Lord. He appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. Huh. So Moses thought, I will go over. And I will see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. And then there were the ten plagues and the Red Sea crossing and the manna and the water from the rock. I mean, God really wanted to keep their attention at that point because, quite frankly, he had a lot to communicate and he wanted to make sure that everyone was listening. I know today we often wish that God would do something like that for us. I've wished that before. I can only guess I'm not the only one. Have you ever wished that God would do something amazing, some new kind of miracle just to get your attention? I bet you have. I bet everybody has. And often we feel like we missed out on the really good stuff that God was doing back in the biblical times. We didn't get to see all of those out-of-the-ordinary miracles of God that the Bible tells us about. And yet if we look a little closer we might find that's not entirely true. I want to talk about something normal for just a moment. Now, it is a miracle, but it's a normal miracle. It's just something we're used to. I'd like to talk about time. I think we would all agree that time is one of those universal experiences that we all can relate to. In fact, from the first time ever I saw your face, I thought that if I could save time in a bottle, I tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like to stop it because time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. So much so that I feel I got to get back in time, time after time. And I felt that way for the longest time. Now, for those of you that are really paying attention, you realize I just fed you a sentence in which I referenced about five or six famous songs about time, and I did this just to prove in my own mad genius sort of way that time is one of those universal experiences that we're all very familiar with. So none of you are going to be all that surprised when I tell you that we can experience time in the present, and we can look back on the time of the past, but the one thing that we cannot do, none of us, is look ahead in time to see what's coming. No one, no one can know what's coming. Oh, we can predict, we can make educated guesses, and sometimes we can get lucky, but we cannot know the future, which means even our predicting is very general, usually, and of our very general predicting, it's off and off. Now, God's well aware of this. He knows this about us, and one of the miraculous ways that he likes to get our attention is he likes to tell the future. This happens to be an incredible thing 
that only God can do. And he tells us this in Isaiah 46. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, when we want to give a reasonable explanation for why we believe in God, we call that Christian apologetics. And when God wants to give an apologetic for himself, he tells us to listen to what he says about the future and to recognize that only God can know the future. Therefore, if predictions are made that come true in the future exactly as they were predicted, we need to take note of them as having come from God because he is the only one in existence that can do that. Now, let's be honest. If I were to predict that sometime this year I am going to eat pizza, that is a very different kind of prediction than if I were to tell you today what the winning lottery numbers are going to be in July. I'm not going to, by the way, but it's a different kind of prediction. And even that would be a different kind of prediction than if somebody in the year 1930 were to tell what the winning lottery numbers would be in July of 2019. If a person correctly predicts the numbers for next month's lottery, we could say that that was a very lucky guess. And you know what? Somebody guesses right quite often. Have you noticed that? But if someone were to predict from the year 1930 that sometime in the future, California was going to hold this contest every month in which somebody could get rich, and then they were to predict the exact numbers that were going to win in July of 2019, and then they were to predict the exact money that would be won somewhere along the line there, if they were to get that right, we'd stop thinking that was a lucky guess. We'd start thinking, there's something else happening here. You can't guess that. You just can't. There are some predictions that are not lucky guesses. And they're not just some person making a silly and very generalized prophecy like I'm going to eat pizza sometime this year. There are some predictions that we find in the scriptures that are absolutely miracles because they were made so far in advance and with such total and complete accuracy that no sane person could ever understand them and their fulfillment and not come to the conclusion that it is miraculous. The Bible is a miraculous book. It tells us of events from a time prior to those events occurring that have been proven to have come true over and over again, and it predicts events that have not yet come that we believe are still to happen in the future just as the Bible predicts them. Now, do we believe the Bible for no good reason? No. Do we believe the Bible just because we want to? 
and at the expense of our own good sense? The answer again is no. We do not believe the Bible just because we want to, though we may in fact want to. Nor do we believe the Bible against good common sense. First and foremost, if you want to know, we believe the Bible because the Holy Spirit gives us faith to believe. But accompanying this faith is also the ability to read ancient prophecies that came to pass with pinpoint accuracy. These prophecies are numerous, and they are so outside of human capability that it would be actually more crazy to not believe in them than it is to believe in them. God has given us miracles that seem ordinary at first glance, but upon looking closely at them, we find ourselves in awe and maybe even a little frightened. And one of these miracles that I am talking about is our text for today. I want you to pay close attention to, to what will be said, because if you are paying close attention to what will be said in the next few minutes, you will see a miracle. You will get to see the supernatural at work in what seems to be so ordinary. How ordinary, you might ask? Well, as ordinary as some words written on a page by a person sometime in the past. It's pretty ordinary. That doesn't sound so amazing at first. But listen carefully, and you will see the supernatural show himself to be alive and well in something that looks so ordinary. So the first thing I need you to do is to turn to Psalm 22 in your Bible. You can read along with me if you would like. I'm going to go ahead and read all of it. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls have encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, 
Do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Now, before we get into the text, I want to talk for just a moment about the human author King David is the author of this psalm and is named as such in the psalm itself. It is important to note that King David lived in a time approximately 1040 B.C. to the year 960 B.C., which puts David's life in a time frame just about a thousand years before Christ. Now, hopefully, I don't have to tell you that a thousand years is a seriously long time. A thousand years ago... There were still 500 years of the Dark Ages to go in Europe before the Renaissance would begin. A thousand years ago, the Crusades had not yet even started. Can you imagine some person, any person from a time like that, predicting just the existence of the American continent? You will remember the entire continent was unknown to Europe at that time. No one in Europe that we know of even had an idea that North and South America even existed. The world was a very different place a thousand years ago because a thousand years is a very long time. David lived approximately a thousand years before the time of Christ. In David's time, there was absolutely no way to know that the little nation of Israel would even exist a thousand years later. And yet, David is predicted to be in the line of the Messiah, a prediction, by the way, that came true. The Messiah is predicted to be a Jew from the tribe of Judah and to be born in Bethlehem, all predictions that would probably have not been possible had Israel ceased to exist, and many nations at the time of David had ceased to exist by the time Christ came around, but Israel was still there. There are, in fact, many predictions of the Messiah that would come to pass. By some estimates, there are over 200 specific predictions of the Messiah in his first coming that were all fulfilled in Jesus, and another hundred or so 
predictions of his second coming that have yet to be fulfilled. And now our text today is going to show several of the predictions that I am talking about, and so I want to go through them now. There's more predictions, by the way, in Psalm 22 that we're going to go through. I'm just going to take five of them. In Matthew 27, we read, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark, we read the same account. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anyone who's familiar with the story of Jesus and knows what Jesus said while he was hanging on the cross, immediately upon reading the first statement of Psalm 22, will be taken back in their minds to the crucifixion of our Lord. What is really curious is that not only does David correctly predict Jesus' exact words while he hangs on the cross, but there are a number of other very specific prophecies in Psalm 22 that depict the crucifixion of Christ. Now, someone may say, did David know he was making these predictions? Or was he simply describing his own personal experiences? To answer that, I would like to say, I have no idea what David knew. David was just a man. And not, quite frankly, the author that most interests me in this passage. We understand and believe that God is the author of Psalm 22. Now, he wrote it through David, and so we know David was the author as well, but he was just a man and may not have realized the significance of what he was writing. But the heavenly author of Psalm 22 knew exactly what he was doing. In this psalm, David cries from his own heart the very words of Christ in his agony on the cross, words that were written a thousand years prior to Christ speaking them. Now someone might say, hey, that's not really a true fulfillment of a prediction because Christ knew this psalm. He was just repeating what he knew David had written, to which I would say, that's a fair point. Jesus did, in fact, know this psalm. He would have been very familiar with it. However, so were all the other Jews. So have the Jews been familiar with this since the time it was first written? And yet, there's nothing to make us think that anyone else ever spoke these words as they were dying. Seriously, how many Jews throughout all of history do you think there have been that quoted these words from David while they died? I mean, do you think half of them said this? I mean, that'd be ridiculous, right? How about 15% of them? I mean, even that seems very high. How about 5% of all Jews have said this as they were dying? Quite frankly, that even seems pretty ludicrous. So maybe you think that there could have been others, and admittedly, there could have been. But of those supposed others that said these words while they were in the process of dying, how many of them 
were heard saying it by people who then thought it was important enough to make a historical record of the fact that they said as they were dying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know of only one person who ever said those words as they were dying that we have an actual historic record of as having said those words as they died, and that one person is Jesus. But maybe you think, you know what, this is just one of those weird coincidences. It's just a far-out, crazy coincidence. These things can happen. David just happened to get that right. And besides, nowhere in that Psalms does David predict with words that it will be the Messiah that says that from the cross. That's not in there. Maybe he's not even talking about that at all. And you know what? If that were the only prediction in this psalm, I might, I might say, yeah, I guess I see your point. But there is so much more. Listen to Luke, Luke 23. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And in Mark 15, it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from that cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And in Matthew it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from that cross so that we can believe. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8, David, 1,000 years earlier, wrote, all those who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. Sort of a strange phrase. It just means to burst forth with the lips. It was a common idiom for sneering. So everyone that sees him mocks him. Everyone that sees him is sneering at him. It goes on. They wag their heads. Listen to what they say. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The actions David is describing are exactly what Christ experienced a thousand years later. They did mock him. They did sneer at him. They did wag their heads at him. And they did say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Now, if you're paying attention, you should be getting a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe you could have dismissed that first prediction as some crazy coincidence. But now you have to deal with not one, but two. Will you just now dismiss this as just another crazy coincidence? 
surely you can see that that is going to be difficult. But we're not yet done. In verse 16, we find probably the most startling of all the predictions. It says this, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. What you need to understand is that David has just precisely described crucifixion, which was a form of death that was not even invented for another 600 years after he wrote this psalm. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians sometime between 400 and 300 B.C., and David wrote this around 1,000 B.C., so somewhere between 600 and 700 years before anyone had ever heard of doing this to a person, David wrote that down. Now, maybe in your Bible there's a little asterisk beside the phrase, pierce my hands and feet. It may say in the index that most Hebrew manuscripts say, like a lion. In other words, in most Hebrew manuscripts, you would not read, pierced my hands and feet. Instead, you would read, like a lion, my hands and my feet. Now, if you're thinking anything like me, then you're immediately wondering, what does like a lion, my hands and my feet, even mean? Because it doesn't mean much to me. But what is interesting is that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Jewish Old Testament, and was translated by 70 Jewish scholars and begun around 300 B.C. and completed around 130 B.C., translates the phrase, like a lion in Hebrew, into the phrase, they have pierced in the Greek. Why is that significant, you may be wondering. Well, the phrase, like a lion, my hands and feet, is sort of a hard thing to figure out, but we don't have to. Because the Jewish scholars of the time themselves took it to mean pierced. It is as if a lion bit down on someone's hands and feet and drove its giant fangs through those appendages. And the damage that that would cause would be practically identical to the damage caused by the nails the Romans used. So not only is this describing crucifixion, but because it uses the reference of a lion, it is describing as precisely as possible the actual size and type of wound that would be caused to the hands and the feet. The accuracy of this prediction is utterly breathtaking. And now if you want to dismiss the prophetic nature of Psalm 22, you have to ignore, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And pretend that that's just some weird coincidence. And then you have to ignore the mocking of Jesus as he dies and the specific thing said to him, which was essentially, if God loves him so much, let God save him now. And then you have to ignore the manner in which his death would come, the piercing of his hands and feet, and even the size of the wound, which would be, like that of a lion's fang. In Psalm 22, verse 18, it reads, They have divided my garment among them and cast lots for my clothing. Again, a very specific prediction. In Mark 15, we read, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. In Luke 23, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. 
Finally, in John 19, we read, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but let us cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture that says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. I want you to know that I am totally convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. If these were the only predictions that there were, I think I would be convinced. Imagine predicting a thousand years before an event five completely separate and unrelated and incredibly specific things about that event and be dead on correct in all five predictions. No human can do that. No one outside of God himself can do that. No one can tell the end from the beginning. And when we see a a miracle like this and see that these prophecies of Psalm 22 were fulfilled exactly as they were stated, it should fill us with awe and wonder because what it tells us is that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is. What it tells us is that Jesus accomplished exactly what the Bible says he accomplished. I'm not saying that it doesn't take faith to put your faith in Christ for your salvation. It does. But I am saying that as far as I can tell, it would take much more faith to believe that Jesus is not the Son of God. In fact, I want to take you through a little math problem for just a moment. This will hopefully illustrate to you what kind of faith it would take to not believe in Christ. You ready? Here we go. So let's just make up some odds here. And just to kind of frame it, if I were to take a jar and fill it with 100 pennies and put a little mark on one of the pennies and put it in the jar and you were to blindfold yourself and pick the right penny, what were the odds that that would have happened? One out of 100, right? We're all, we're all tracking. All right. How likely do you think it is for a person, any person, throughout all of history, to have said the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as they're dying? Any of you ever heard of that? Someone's dying and they say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, while they're dying? I've never even heard of that except this one time. But what are the odds that it would happen? If I were to say, and I'm trying to lowball this, if I were to say one out of every 100,000 people say that when they're dying, does that seem fair? I mean, probably be a lot more. Can we agree? Probably be one out of every 100 million or one out of every billion maybe. But I'm trying to lowball this just so we can all kind of agree that that's fair. We agree? Is that fair? Okay. How many people are mocked? by crowds of people as they die. 
I'm sure that it happens sometimes, but death's a pretty somber thing. And generally, even if somebody's being executed, they're not mocked as they're actually dying. I've never actually heard of that happening anyway. If I were again to say that one out of every 100,000 people that die are mocked while they're dying, would you agree that's a conservative, fair estimation? Okay. Now, how many people would you guess have the phrase, if God loves him so much, let God save him now, said to them as they're dying? You're probably starting to see how incredible it would be to believe that these predictions are just coincidences. But let's keep going. What would the odds be? If I said that one out of a million people have that said to them, as they're dying, does that seem conservative, fair? I mean, it's probably a lot more, right? Probably 100 million or a billion, but we're just going to keep the estimates low. So one out of every million people that die have that said to them. By the way, uh, there are uh, 55, 150 million or so people that die a year. So we're saying that, you know, there'd be 50, 55, 60 people a year have that said to them as they die. That seems high, right? I hope you see what I'm saying. Now, how many people do you suppose are killed through crucifixion? I mean, you're probably thinking, well, almost nobody these days. And yeah, that's true. But I mean, obviously, there were times in the past where this was done more. But let's just stretch it out throughout history. How many people would you say have died of crucifixion. If I said that one out of every million people that die, die of crucifixion, could you agree that's kind of lowballing it? Probably much more than that, but we'll just lowball it. How many people that are killed have others casting lots for their clothing as they're dying? I mean, come on. I mean, did that ever happen? It did this time, it wouldn't. Um, I would say if I were to give you a one out of a million chance again, that would, that would have to be incredibly lowball, very reasonable estimation. Okay, so there they are, the five estimations. Now, if you want to write this down, you can go ahead and write it down. To calculate the odds of all these predictions and having them been fulfilled in the life of one person. So that's what we want to know. What are the odds that those five predictions would happen in the life of one individual. How would we find that out? Well, the way you do it is you multiply. That's how you do it. So if you multiplied one out of 100,000 times one out of 100,000 times one out of a million times one out of a million times one out of a million, you would end up with one out of 10 to the 28th power, which is a one followed by 28 zeros. I actually wrote it down for you. I don't even know what that number is. But what I can tell you is that it's more than a trillion trillions. It's more than a trillion trillions. In other words, the odds are more than one out of a trillion trillions against that David could have gotten those predictions right. And the scary thing is that against those odds, David did get all those predictions right. 
still takes faith to believe that Christ is the Messiah, but I hope you can see it takes far more faith to believe that he's not. I also want you to keep in mind that there are over 200 predictions in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Christ's life, and we just talked about the odds of five of them coming true. I heard one person estimate that the odds of 16 of the 200 coming true were one out of 10 to the 284th power, just 16 of them. Now, for those of you that are science buffs, I want to tell you guys, this will shock you, that scientists have estimated the number of atoms in the universe. I don't know how they do this. They're nuts, right? But the estimation that they came up with is that the number of atoms in the universe is 10 to the 80th power. I hope you're starting to feel the weight. God has worked an absolute miracle in the scriptures. And he has proven it out in history, and we can look at it to this day. Do not let this just be some kind of normal miracle that you're used to. Think about what just happened right here and right now. You just read a prophecy that was written down a thousand years before it was fulfilled, and the odds of it happening just as it were written were over one in a trillion trillions against. The Bible is a miracle, and you can just hold it in your hands. Be amazed, be frightened, and be thankful, for God is present in this book. He has created us. He has loved us. He has made the way of salvation for us. When you look closely at the Bible and consider it for what it is, you will realize that God has proven himself through the scriptures. We don't have to guess. We can know. God wants us to know. He wants us to be certain. The Bible tells us that we're sinners and that God is holy and just and that he will punish all evil because he is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and perfectly just. And he will not make an exception. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins must die. The Bible tells us this, and it is not kidding. We don't have to wonder if it's true. God is not mocked that which a man sows, that will he also reap. If you have sown sin in your life, you will reap destruction and judgment. It's a fact. It is reality. And it is coming. But because of God's great love for us, he did not want to have to punish us with an eternal hell. And so he sent his son, Jesus who was pierced in his hands and his feet and hung from a cross above a crowd who stood beneath him and mocked him and wagged their heads at him and sneered at him as he bled and died. That crowd yelled out, if God loves him so much, let God save him now. And at the foot of that cross, soldiers were casting lots. They were gambling beneath him to see who would win his clothes. And as he hung there dying, this man looked up to heaven and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Isaiah 53 tells us why. In 53, 3 and 5, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. God wants to save you. God wants to save you so much that not only did he send Christ to take the punishment that you and I and we all deserve, not only did he forsake for that moment his own son on our behalf, but he was also very careful to predict it all in such a way as to prove to anyone who is willing to look that salvation is real and it is found through Christ alone. And it is for all who would put their faith in Christ, the one and only Son of the living God. God has done this. He has saved us through his son. He has proved it to be the case through the absolute miracle of his word. Repent, therefore, and give your life to Christ. Do it. Do it now. Do it joyfully because your life is worthless without Christ. The last two verses of Psalm 22 say this. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Wow, we're actually in the prophecy. That's us. Those people yet unborn. That's you and me. And they will proclaim his righteousness to this people yet unborn. Why? Well, it says why. Because he has done it. Maybe you have wanted God to grant you a miracle. Maybe you've wanted God to show you just how real he is and how real his love for you is. Let this miracle of prophecy in Psalm 22 be that miracle that you've been waiting for. The odds of those five prophecies all being fulfilled in the life of one person are over a trillion trillions to one against. And that's only five of over 200 prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. We see the normal miracles of life all around us every day. And many people ignore them just because they're familiar. Oh, they're miraculous, but they're familiar. Hopefully you have just witnessed a miracle of prophecy that is less familiar to you. Hopefully it has grabbed your attention and strengthened your faith. Let's pray. God, your word is astounding. We are in awe of it. There is no explanation for the Bible except that it was written by you. It is the very word of God and what it says is true. I pray that you would grant us the faith to believe it and to live it. And that through that, 
you would save us and we would get to glorify you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we close in one last song?